Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 33. I know what you're thinking. What on earth is going on with Nicola's voice? Unfortunately, our venerable host will be indisposed for the next couple of weeks. In the meantime, she's entrusted the keys to the Hover Castle to me. I'm Mark Zanfordino, the audio engineer for the Triple F, and I'll be your host until Nicola returns. While we wait, let's listen to some stories. First up is a quirky piece of magical realism called America is Coming by Dario Siriello previously published in the anthology Triangulation, End of Time, in 2007. Mr. Suriello is a professional author and editor whose non-fiction book, Aegean Dream, the bittersweet memoir of a year spent on the small Greek island of Skopelos of Mamma Mia fame, was a UK travel bestseller in 2012. His first novel, Sutherland's Rules, a thriller with a shimmer of the fantastic, was published in February 2013, and a collection of Dario's short science fiction works, Free Verse and Other Stories, was released in June 2014. He is currently working on his second novel, Another Thriller. Dario has also edited several novels and critically acclaimed anthologies for Panverse Publishing, LLC, of which he is the executive editor. You can learn more via the links on our website. Nicola recently spoke with Dario. Here's what he had to say in regards to this story and more. So, here we are interviewing uh, Dario Siriello, who is the author of our upcoming story today, America is Coming. Dario, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure <laughs> to be here. Um, I just have a couple of questions for you. Um, when I was reading the story before I actually assigned it, um, I just thought the premise behind the story is just wild. I, our, our listeners are going to hear it in a minute, but um, tell us a little bit about where the idea came from. You know, I, I always loved the old English expression that you use when someone, you know, 
does something crazy and and you say they've come unmoored and you know i've been living in the u.s now for 25 years and it often strikes me that i still don't understand how people think or where they're coming from just why this nation is so nuts and one day i had this this mental image of the whole continent becoming unmoored and um I'd always wanted to write a magic realist kind of story, and and I guess that's where it came from. All right. So, is this not your general genre? Not really. Um, you know, I'm I'm all over the map. Um, I started off writing science fiction and fantasy, which this is definitely you know in in a, in a related territory. But um, I've also you know in terms of novels, I've written a. And I can talk about later if you like. I've written a um, a non-fiction travel book and also a thriller. So I'm all over the board, really. All right. Uh, a non-fiction travel book, you said? Yes. About? <laughs> I'm sorry? About? Okay, so it's it's called A Gian Dream. And it's it, my wife and I um, uprooted and moved to a tiny Greek island in 2006, the island of Skopelos in the northern Aegean. And it, it became famous actually a year later as the actual Mamma Mia island. It's where the movie was filmed. And we moved there with the intention of never returning and starting a new life. And um, things didn't work out that way. And we ended up back in the US a year later, just as the economy totally tanked. And so it's a it's a pretty unvarnished, bittersweet travel memoir and um, very different to the usual kind of year in Provence offerings. And it did very well in the UK. It was a UK bestseller in 2011, hmm. 2012, actually. I, I think I should give it a, a read. I, I am fascinated by the Greek islands ever since reading Gerald Durrell's A Child. Oh, his books are wonderful. My mother was a huge fan of those too, and I, I inherited that from her. Yes, yeah. I've always wanted to go to Corfu just just to wander around, and I mean it's obviously uh, quite touristy now, and it wouldn't be anything like what he experienced. But just to actually stand on the ground where where he was when he wrote mm -hmm. those stories is brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, your story, America is coming. It seems it has a little bit of a, a political bent. It's a, it's a, seems like almost a metaphor for America's recent um, <clears throat> global war. Um, are you sending any kind of a message? Was it political for you? <laughs> you know, that, that's funny because a lot of reviewers have actually mentioned that. Um, I'm, no, I'm not. At least I, I never intended to. Um, I try and stay away from politics. And I think, you know, I really... I really think that writing to, to make a point is it's something I don't enjoy doing. It, but it kind of relates to your first question, you know, the sense that America's a crazy country. Um, and, you know, again, I really just wanted to write a magic realist tale, but of course no one knows what really goes on in, you know, the seething ferment of a writer's mind. So the theme, I guess, was there subconsciously. But I, you know, I certainly didn't have a critique of the USA mind at the time of writing. Mm -hmm. Later, of course, it becomes pretty obvious. <laughs> <laughs> um, the actual, the, the scene in the beginning, well, the, the, towards the beginning of the story where the boat is going up and down those huge waves, it's, it, it actually reminds me a lot of The Perfect Storm, that movie, The Perfect Storm. <laughs> um, have you done much sailing? Is this coming from experience? No, it's not. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that a, a you know, again, a couple of people have, have asked me that. Um, it's pure research. My, I, I get very seasick, and I'd love, I love the sea, but I can't spend much time on it. And uh, the 
the actual um, my my whole experience of sailing or being on the water really comes from wakeboarding on the back of a friend's ski boat. Um, <laughs> but it you know it's really just research based and you know obviously images from movies and things. But I got you know the little hard hard sailing um, uh, what shall we say information or situations. I, I basically got it from research. Mm-hmm. Are you are you a, a diligent researcher? Do you spend a lot of time doing it? You know, I, I, I'm glad to say I, I can usually pull back from the brink. It's very hazardous. It's, it's very dangerous for writers because, you know, you find that you need to know, you know, the the the, the exact position of a Nazi SS soldier's epaulettes for a story. Mm. The next thing you know, you're buying books on the Waffen SS and reading piles of material about it and, and you're not writing. So I, I'm I'm pretty good at scanning and skimming information. So no, I don't do a huge amount. I try and do just enough. Okay. Um you did you mentioned uh, a while back your your non fiction travel book. What else have you published? What else can people read of yours? Thank you for asking. Um, so, G and Dream, which is the one you just mentioned, I wrote in twen- I published that in 2011. Um, last year, I published a, my first novel called Sutherland's Rules, and it's a it's a caper thriller, really, and it's a, a kind of scurrilous adventure about two old friends, both aging hippies in their 60s, who decide to go off on a crazy and extremely dangerous last hurrah. And um, that's out in print and and ebook. You can find it on Amazon and everywhere. Sutherland's Rules. And um, you know, I just wanted to write a fun, fast-paced page turner. And a lot of people have told me it is that, so I'm pretty happy with that. And I also just published a collection of short stories, which are um, both hard and some of them are humorous science fiction. And that's called Free Verse and Other Stories. Okay, sounds interesting. Thank you. <laughs> Are you working on anything exciting at the moment? Can you tell us anything about what you're working on now? I am. I've just got back to my writing. I I took a year off because I I had a small publishing company and I published several other people's sto- uh, novels. Um, and I'm just getting back to my own work. The current one, provisionally titled Black Easter, is a supernatural thriller. And um, it's got parallel storylines, one taking place in in, the, in wartime, really, and the other one taking the, the main action of the story takes place in the present. And um, it involves demons and resurrected Nazi colonels and all kinds of stuff. Wow, <laughs> that sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm hoping that's going that's going to be ready in a you know six months or so. I'd like to get it published in six months or a year. And I've got uh, I you know I occasionally publish some short stories. I've got one called Immigrants, which I'll be publishing in the next month or so. All right. Do you do you publish in uh, in journals or where, where where do you normally publish your short stories? I've been in a few anthologies and. Um, you know, a couple of little science fiction magazines and online publications. But, um, you know, I, in my day day work, as it, as it is, um, I've been self-employed my whole life. So the freedom of self-publishing and the control it gives me really uh, appeals to me. So I've pretty much stopped submitting. Mm-hmm. Um, when Black Easter, the next novel, the thriller, is done, I may try 
um, getting that published by a traditional publisher, I think it may be attractive to them, but it's hard for me to, you know, to kind of let go of so much control over my work. So mostly I self-publish. I have a, a small publishing company called Panverse Publishing, which I put out all my work under. All right. Well, any of our listeners who are interested uh, can follow the links on the Triple F website. Uh, Dario, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you, Nicola. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, I sincerely hope that you enjoy our interpretation of your fantastic story. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Our thanks to Mr. Siriello for taking the time to speak with us. The story is read to you by Todd Flatland. Todd is many things, a lover, a fighter, a comedian, an actor, an improviser, and a film critic. Telling stories is one of his favorite things, so narration naturally felt like a fun and challenging enterprise. He lives in Idaho and has been married to his amazing wife, Christy, for nine years. And now, America is Coming by Dario Siriello. Nice day for the end of the world. Any sign yet? Salvatore's voice at his side startled Peppino. A few moments ago, his friend had been flat on his back on the scrubby ground with his right hand curled around an empty wine bottle, snoring gently. Peppino shook his head. The two friends watched as the rising sun beat a familiar copper path on the tranquil sea, spilling warmth over the world. Across the gulf, beyond the mountainous headlands silhouetted in the rising sun's glare, the deserted capital of Palermo held its breath and waited for the end of history. America was coming. The point afforded a view of the Tyrrhenian's violet waters on three sides. In the west, night clung to sea and sky, while at their back rough hills sloped gently down to the fine sand where Peppino's bright red and green rowboat lay atilt at the water's edge. Beyond it, fifty meters out, the borrowed Coast Guard cutter lolled at anchor. Stolen cutter, Peppino conceded, crossing himself mentally. What did it matter? In a few hours the sea would be so wild that nobody in his right mind would dare it. Salvatore ran a hand over the stubble on his cheeks and frowned. The chubby fellow, Peppino's best friend for three decades, had always been fastidious, probably a good thing in a man whose business was serving people food. A fisherman had more pressing concerns. Reaching into his faded lavender pack, once a proud navy blue, Peppino brought out a stale roll and half a salami. He tore the roll in two and cut two thick hunks of salami with his bone-handled pocket knife. A breeze kicked up from the lightning west. Salvatore bit into the bread with a grunt of satisfaction. It's coming. One feels it, no? Peppino nodded. Even with the corners knocked off, the North American landmass made its own weather as it slid across the globe like a carefree drunk on a dance floor, carelessly demolishing anything which got in its way. The last satellite images on television had shown America advancing at an average speed of 47 kilometers per hour, revolving counterclockwise as it sailed the debris-strewn waters where Spain and West Africa had spent the last several million years. Now it was Italy's turn. According to the Instituto Geologico's computer projections, the Texas Peninsula would strike the Tyrrhenian coast south of Rome like a machete, slicing the tall Italian boot in two just below the knee. Severe splintering was possible because of the hardness of the Apennines. The islands of Sardinia and Corsica would be pulverized, and though Sicily was expected to escape the primary impact, the predicted 20-30 to 30 meter tidal surge would obliterate the northern coast of Palermo with it. 
in about six hours' time. When the two men had washed down their breakfast with a draft of mineral water, Peppino clapped his companion on the shoulder. Let's go, before one of us loses his courage. What I'd give for a good espresso, complained Salvatore. When we get to America, you can drink all the coffee you like. The smaller man clasped his hands together in supplication. But what if they can't get coffee since the country took off on its adventure? Of course they'll have coffee. Even the cowboys and the westerns had coffee. Come on. I imagine it was disgusting, grumbled Salvatore. They say that they put this special coating on the rocks along the coasts. A new metal, or pieces of meteorite, I can't remember, said Salvatore as they climbed the ladder from the rowboat onto the cutter's polished deck. What are you talking about? The CIA, to harden the coastline so America wouldn't break up when it hit other big countries. Papino snorted with laughter. <laughs> Who told you that? I read this article in La Repubblica. That communist rag. Well, why not? How does one explain that America only loses little bits of land along the coast while everything it bangs into falls to pieces? Brazil, Spain, North Africa, all of them reduced to splinters. With a last silent farewell to his beloved little rowboat, Peppino started toward the wheelhouse. Well, Brazil was probably very soft, just soggy earth under all that water from the Amazon. Africa, hmm. Salvatore had a point. Exactly, Salvatore exclaimed triumphantly. Africa. A sudden gust of wind made both men look out to sea. There was some chop in the water now, and the cutter rolled a bit. Peppino frowned. If we don't get going, we'll be in small pieces floating around with the camels and palm trees. Come on. The wheelhouse, bridge, he supposed it should be properly called, was crammed with screens and lights and electronics. Peppino pressed a button in the center of the forward instrument console. A rich hum started somewhere deep in the ship, building to a sonorous chant as the cutter's mighty engines awoke. Another, a loud clanking from the bows, confirmed that he'd pushed the right button for the anchors. He'd only had an afternoon to familiarize himself with the controls, but a boat was a boat. Peppino eased the throttle levers to half, and the big boat surged forward. He swung the cutter into the west, hand light on the wheel, and punched it. An hour later, the swell had grown to some two meters, and white caps sparkled in the sun. Salvatore had found the galley and returned with a tray laden with cheese and ham as well as a pot of strong coffee. Now that's better. At least we can die with our bellies full. I, um, suppose you've thought about exactly how we're going to land in America with a sea like this? That depends. If we're lucky, we'll find a nice beach waiting for us and just slide smoothly ashore. And if we're unlucky? Peppino shrugged. We'll find ourselves looking at the side of a mountain and have to navigate a way around it in thirty-meter seas driven by a mass that can smash continents. He didn't want to worry his old friend, but he gave them as much chance of survival as a sardine in a tuna's jaws. But they had to try. What was the point of retreating to the hills, any hills, as long as America was careening around the globe? Salvatore sipped at his coffee, spilling some as the boat pitched suddenly forward. Well, I hope it's worth the trouble. I mean, all the things I've read about America over the last few years... Half the population in prison, half of it so overfed that it can only get about in motorized beds, the other half with its brains replaced by computers. That's three halves, said Peppino. The swells were bigger now, and the sky ahead was growing darker rather than lighter. It was 9.15. Well, it's what they say. Why did you want to come if you believe all that? Salvatore looked thunderstruck. Because, well, because you're my friend. And even if they're all crazy there, in a country so big, there has to be a hole where a simple fisherman and a waiter can make a new life. Besides, I'm curious. 
Things are either very good there, or they're terrible. I think I'm getting seasick, he added. Peppino was curious, too. There had been no news from inside the Korean continent since a few weeks before it took to sea almost a year ago. America's land borders were no longer. Automated systems fired without warning at anything that approached its airspace. Camera-equipped drones had been tried and vaporized, several overflying satellites disabled, and the coasts were defended by the mountainous wash of the behemoth's passage. Salvatore's color deteriorated with the sea, and he left the bridge for the railing. The wind had got up, and by the time Peppino caught sight of the lumpy gray mass on the horizon between bouts of spray breaking over the bows, the cutter was smashing its way through heavy seas under a threatening sky. Peppino turned their course five degrees south and shouted to Salvatore to come back indoors. His plan, which he didn't for a moment believe would work, but one should always have a plan, was to edge as close to the approaching continent as the sea would allow, paralleling its eastward passage, and try to spy out a landing space as it sailed past, at which point they'd have to act quickly. Salvatore's face as he re-entered the cabin was the color of a good gorgonzola. "'I'm going to die,' he announced, closing the door with difficulty as the cutter hit a particularly confused patch of water. He staggered to Peppino's side, gazing at the dark bulk ahead. Even with the cutters tossing and the spray in the air, Peppino could now make out a great cliff of rust-colored rock slicing eastward through the sea ahead and to the right, with darker, flat-topped mesas in the distance beyond. Although the jagged tip of the Texas Peninsula would pass some kilometers to the north of their own course, they were getting the bow waves already. Mother of Christ, look at that thing. Soon Peppino was forcing the cutter up walls of water ten meters high and sliding down into troughs mazy with foam before piling into the coals again. The vessel heeled hard to port as a sudden squall hit them. The next wave smacked the starboard bow, and the cutter yawed horribly under a cascade of white. Salvatore screamed. "'Pull yourself together!' shouted Peppino. "'I've rowed through worse water than this, goddammit!' "'Don't blaspheme!' cried Salvatore. "'We're in enough trouble without upsetting the Lord.' But Peppino barely heard the words. Instead, he found himself suddenly overcome by a weird rapture. Not because of Salvatore's god, but because the very real spirits of Peppino's fisherman ancestors had chosen at that same instant to caress his heart. A great calm descended upon him, and he coaxed the boat back on course, taking the waves head-on. Around them, a slashing rain under black skies cut visibility to a dozen meters, and sheets of lightning startled the thrashing waters. The horizon reared and fell, every monstrous wave a fresh dice roll against destiny. None of it mattered. Peppino piloted the boat with eldritch skill edging the cutter ever closer to the Texas coast until the leading edge of the peninsula had passed them and they were sailing roughly parallel to the coastline. Even Salvatore, terrified as he was, fell silent in a sort of reverential awe. Half a lifetime later, under a lightning sky, they watched America's red cliffs glide majestically by, like the rustling hull of an infinite tanker. Salvatore, grab those binoculars and make yourself useful. Find us a landing place. Not just a nook, but a beach or cove with a way that leads inland. Salvatore scanned the shore, steadying himself as best he could while waves exploded against the cutter's bows and sheets of foam-laced water sluiced the decks. The sky was growing dark again. The wind screamed. There, shouted Salvatore. There, a beach. Peppino tightened his grip on the wheel with his left hand and grabbed the binoculars with his right. Sky, sea, sky. Damn the pitching and tossing. And there it was, a crescent of shingle with a narrow-walled canyon leading inland. That's it, he shouted. It would do. It had to. The moment they crested the next wave, he swung the cutter hard north and powered down the wave's shimmering flank into the trough until the next green-backed monster forced him to turn into it again and back. 
When they zigzagged to within a kilometer of the coast, Peppino dropped the sea anchor to keep the cutter into the waves and eased back the throttles. He clapped Salvatore on the shoulder. Grab your pack and let's go. If Salvatore had been frightened on the cutter, he was terrified in the inflatable. He clung on in terror, ashen face, and orange life jacket standing out against the heaving expanse of white and green surrounding them. The beach had passed beyond their position, but under Peppino's hands, the twin 140-horse Mercury outboard had them slewing, bouncing, skipping, and occasionally flying at hair-raising speeds. How they didn't sink, it seemed at times there was as much water in the inflatable as in the seas around them, was a mystery. Peppino wondered if his kidneys would ever settle back into place after such a pounding. If they lived through the landing. And there was the beach, a hundred meters to their left. Peppino's mind was a chalkboard of competing forces and geometries. The turbulence of the continent's passage through the sea generated a constant wash, and if they didn't land as far up the beach as they could, there was every chance that the wash would drag them right back out to sea. He pulled a little ahead of the beach, heeled the inflatable hard to port, and gave it full throttle. The outboard roared, the nose came up, and Salvatore began a scream that lasted all the way until the craft hit land, became airborne for several meters, hit the beach again, and plowed several bus lengths in a grinding, growling rooster tail of shingle, finally coming to a halt when the inflatable hit bare red earth at the canyon mouth. They sat there, stunned and disbelieving. They were alive. Behind them, the sea churned by in a wake like that of no ship on earth, lapping up the shingle almost to the boat at times. Ahead, a red dirt passage wound away between two walls of red rock, in whose crannies grew hardy little shrubs. Over the sound of the sea wash, Peppino caught the pooeet of an unseen bird. An unfamiliar spicy scent was in the wind. And it was windy. Peppino jumped up, hoisting his pack and thrusting first one arm, then another through the straps. Salvatore, come on, hurry, we have to go. Salvatore stared at him. A little color had crept back into his face, but he still looked as though he could use a good stiff drink. What's the rush? We're on a piece of land that's going to crash into the Gulf of Gaeta in about two hours. That's what's the rush. Peppino grabbed his friend's pack and thrust it at him. Get that on and let's go. Other than the wind, which lessened in the shelter of the canyon walls, there was no sense of motion beyond their own progress. The sky was clearing. The air became hot and buzzed with insects. The canyon grew gradually wider and its walls lower, until they found themselves on the edge of a scrubby plain. And there, not a hundred meters away, surrounded by a garden of weeds and beds of dead flowers, stood a house. The house looked as though it had been abandoned for some while. The owners may have expected to return. The ground floor windows were tidily boarded over with plywood and the door was locked, as was the dusty red jeep parked in the shade of an orange tree heavy with unpicked fruit. The two friends looked at one another. Their eyes turned to the dusty track that led inland, away from the house, the coast, and the general vicinity of the frightful impact that would occur in less than an hour. Peppino found a rock, hefted it. He was about to smash the driver's side window when Salvatore held up his index finger. Wait! Salvatore knelt down, craned his neck this way and that beneath the jeep, and retrieved a hide-a-key box with a flourish. Bravissimo, said Peppino. Now let's see if it starts. It didn't. The battery was so dead the starter motor wouldn't even wheeze, but the jeep was light and had a manual transmission. With luck, there'd be fuel in the tank. They threw the packs in the back seat, then pushed and steered it out of the garden and onto the dirt track. Ready? said Peppino. Salvatore nodded, and with Peppino pushing from behind and Salvatore pushing at the driver's doorstep with the other hand on the steering wheel, the jeep started on the second try. 
Salvatore, being the more experienced driver, bounced them along the dirt track at bone-rattling speed. After half an hour, they came to an intersection with a paved highway and a signpost. El Paso, 221 mile, Pepino read off, looking in the direction indicated, and turning the other way. San Antonio, 332. He scratched his head. Did you bring a map, said Salvatore. Of Texas? Pepino snorted a laugh. He tried the glove box and found it empty. But I have just the thing. Reaching back between the seats to his pack, he brought out a nifty orienteering compass and stepped outside the jeep to get clear of the car's electrics. After a moment's consideration, he jumped back in. San Antonio is to the northeast, which is toward the collision. Take the direction to El Paso. How's the petrol? He added, as Salvatore put the jeep in gear and turned into the asphalt. A little over half full. Slow or fast? Save fuel or get as far as we can from the coast before the catastrophe? Pepino glanced at his watch. Florid, I just thought of something. Vesuvius! But that's at least fifty kilometers south of the impact zone. But much closer to the area where we landed. If I remember the Instituto Geologico's model on TV, our beach was only a few kilometers from the tip of the peninsula, and America is rotating as it advances, remember? He modeled the movement with his hands. So what happens when the ground around the volcano starts to rupture? All that lava looking for a way out. Remember Pompeii? Salvatore's eyes widened. He jumped on the accelerator and redlined the jeep in every gear until they were barreling along at a steady ninety miles an hour. They drove with the windows down and a hot, humid wind buffeting their faces and tugging at their hair. The road was arrow-straight, the land around them eroded and empty. They passed over a pair of streams within a few miles. Low, rock-strewn hills tolerated the occasional stunted tree, with here and there surprising growths of lush new grass for what appeared to be essentially arid land. Still, if a country insisted on moving from one place to another, one would expect unusual changes. Driveways leading to distant houses flashed by. They sped past the ornate gates of what must have been a large ranch. Where is everybody? said Salvatore. I've been wondering the same. On a road like this, we should have seen some other traffic by now. Probably they've all headed away from the impact area, too. What I'd give for a beer... Peppino reached back into his pack, opened a fresh bottle of water, and was about to hand over when the ride became suddenly lumpy and uneven. What's that? said Peppino. I think we must have blown a tire. Damn! Salvatore pulled over to the side of the road, but the motion only got worse. The jeep was bouncing violently in its springs, and a light mist of dust began to rise from the dry earth on either side of the road. My God! cried Peppino. It's happening! Italy's been hit! They scrambled out of the jeep in a panic. The shaking was far worse on the ground than in the car, and both of them had difficulty keeping their feet. Noise, a huge, round, roaring sound, came at them from everywhere. The earth under them shook like a rat in a terrier's jaws. "'Look out!' Salvatore shouted as a crack half a meter wide zigzagged toward them along the middle of the road. They staggered onto the dirt, expecting at any moment to be swallowed by a new and monstrous fissure appearing at their feet. After an eternity, the shaking became mere trembling, then an uneasy, jagged shiver. The cataclysm's all-filling roar faded to silence, and the jeep's mad lurching ceased. The pall of red dust that had risen to a height of several meters all around them started to sift slowly back to earth. To the south, Pepino saw a faraway blossom of white through the thinning red haze. The ground beneath them continued to tremble and undulate. They watched the blossom evolve into a mushroom, rising up and up into the clearing sky. In less than a minute, the mushroom stem had begun to thicken, its cap darkening to gray and then black as it began to balloon outward. The volcano, Peppino heard himself whisper. 
Salvatore crossed himself, missing his left shoulder by some centimeters as fresh tremors shook the ground. Saints preserve us. The mushrooms grew monstrous. Dark lava bombs and fireworks of red rained from the body of the thing onto the surrounding lands. The mushrooms' base spread, roiling out at ground level, while the towering column of darkness began to expand in a turbulent black umbrella of death. Peppino pushed his friend toward the jeep. In the car, he shouted. Let's go. Drive as if the devil were chasing us, he added, perhaps unnecessarily. What was boiling up in the sky just twenty or thirty kilometers away was the poisonous breath of hell itself. Salvatore spun the tires, and a moment later they were barreling along as fast as the jeep would go. Turned awkwardly in his seat, Peppino watched the eruption unfold. The mass of smoke had expanded to several times its earlier size and was tumbling along the ground in every direction in a great black avalanche hundreds of meters high. It was still far away. With luck, it would slow down long before reaching them. Their beach was undoubtedly gone by now. He shivered. Salvatore, hunched over the wheel as though that would make the jeep go faster, kept glancing in the rearview mirror. The plume of smoke and ash stretched a sinister arm toward them. Even at this distance, the ashfall was something to worry about. Before long, they saw a green sign ahead and a huddle of buildings beyond. Salvatore slowed to seventy, then sixty as they approached. Saragossa, said Salvatore. It almost sounds Italian. Spanish. Slow down some more. Those are cars in the road ahead. They were indeed cars, all stationary, most of them abandoned in the middle of the highway. Salvatore slowed to twenty as they entered the main street. He was maneuvering around a huddle of empty vehicles when a man stepped out of a doorway to their left. The man was young, dark-complexioned with glossy black hair, purple shirt flapping over a small frame, white jeans, dusty boots. Salvatore stopped the car in the middle of the street. The ash cloud was closing fast. The man introduced himself as Xavier, and the three of them quickly improvised a workable pigeon. Vulcan, declared Xavier, pointing to the east. Boom! See, see, boom, agreed Peppino. Where do you come from? Cecilia, said Salvatore. Cecilia? Italia, spaghetti, pizza. Italia, el Vaticano, you priests? Salvatore shook his head. No priests. I waiter, him fisherman. Xavier nodded. Fisherman, you come small boat? Yes. Good, small boat, good. Big boats, computer shooting out of water. Boom, boom. You want cerveza? Salvatore turned to Peppino. A servant girl, he said in Italian. Beer, beer, said Xavier, drinking from an imaginary bottle. Salvatore's face lit up. Bira? Peppino slapped him on the arm. We don't have time. Pompeii, remember? As if to underscore his point, the street grew suddenly dim around them as the ash cloud blotted out the noonday sun. Peppino grabbed Xavier by the shoulder, shouting, Lava! Ash! Muerte! He made gasping and coughing noises, crossed his arms over his chest in a death pose, and rolled his eyes up in his head, mouth open. It wasn't entirely feigned, either. The air was tinged with sulfurous exhalations. We go jeep. Quick. El Paso. You want? You come. Me him go now. Xavier looked doubtful. He took another glance at the sky, which had taken on a fuzzy appearance as a fine powder began to sift down around them. Okay, okay, he agreed, adding something about a baby. Wife and baby. That was it. All, all go. I quick. And bring cerveza shouted Salvatore as the young man ran back across the street calling a woman's name. 
"'He's no cold,' Xavier said, handing Salvatore and Peppino a pair of beers from the suddenly crowded back seat of the jeep. "'No electricity. Please, no El Paso Road,' he added as they got underway. He pointed to a sign at the approaching intersection. "'This to Pecos!' Salvatore stopped the car in the intersection. The road to Pecos forked right at about 90 degrees. That wouldn't take them any further from the ash cloud. "'Why?' said Peppino. "'Why not El Paso?' El Paso very away. No gas. Nobody got finish. Pecos near. Some say good Mexican family there. Also go Africa people. Big river. Plenty water. Many house. Pecos more safe. Twenty-six miles, the sign said. Pepino peered through the windshield into the dusty gloom. Though the ashfall appeared to be slowing, it would be better to be indoors in a well-supplied town. He turned back to Xavier. All three of them, Xavier and his wife and infant son, were staring at him with big puppy eyes, innocent and trusting. Peppino glanced at Salvatore, who'd just finished his beer and was already looking happier. What do you think? Salvatore looked at the empty bottle in his hand and nodded. It's not bad. He turned to Xavier. Another? Peppino threw up his hands, trapped in a car with two crazy men in a doomed foreign land that had lost its moorings. When, all those years ago, his poor father had advised him to emigrate to America, he didn't think the old man had quite this scenario in mind. Pecos, then, he said, and slow down a little if you're going to drink and drive. Xavier, said Peppino as they ripped along the black top toward Pecos, where is everybody? All the Americanos. Xavier's eyes grew wide. You don't know? Salvatore and Peppino exchanged an uneasy glance. No. Xavier closed his eyes and tilted his head sideways, miming sleep. Oh, sleeping. Sleeping? What do you mean? Long sleep, like animal in winter. Peppino blinked. Hibernating? Everybody? All of them? How? Why? added Salvatore. Cozy in the middle of the back seat, the infant's eyes drooped. It snuggled closer to Mama, who looked similarly bored by the conversation. Men. Xavier handed Salvatore another beer. Much people, lot problem, he shrugged. Too much fight. Some say wait better time economic. Other want wait come Jesus. Scientists talk big problem with Earth. Maybe some technic plate something. So everybody say sleep. Wake when better time. He took a swig of beer and belched. My cousin tell me. He returned just before America break off from Mexico. Peppino's head was swimming. Three hundred million people hibernating. Where? Where are they all sleeping? In their houses? In hotels? I think is one big place in mountains. Make many, many beds, computers. Everybody go sleep. Why not you go with family? asked Salvatore. Like you. We come by boat when America move. Also fishermen. America, much empty houses, shops, food. Cerveza. But I no drive. With you now, go Pecos. More people, maybe. We make fiesta, no? Salud. And that's how America came to us, concluded Peppino, after the ritual telling of the story. Eventually, after demolishing almost everything on earth, what was left of the country finally stopped and planted itself down here. A cool zephyr straying off Sandia Peak to the east brought a welcome relief from the humid heat. At the mountain's feet, decaying Albuquerque had all but vanished in the lush sea of tropical growth. 
lemurs and koala bears played in its plazas and alleys. Just across the straits where the Rio Grande had once flowed, if you could believe the old maps, they seemed increasingly to describe a fantasy rather than what had once been real. The gorgeously fractured Wangare, coast of New Zealand's North Island, shimmered in the noonday heat. The crowd seated around Pepino at the annual Thanksgiving Day Beach Fiesta drew a collective sigh of satisfaction, a heartfelt expression of gratitude at their good fortune to be alive in the new era. On the fringes of the crowd, Salvatore poured himself a fresh glass of wine and attended to the spitted pig, which was crisping up nicely. "'What about Xavier, uncle?' said Mina, Salvatore's six-year-old daughter. "'What became of him?' Peppino tapped his throat, indicating a need for further refreshment, which was immediately supplied. "'When America finally came to rest, Xavier put on a tux and dress shoes and rode out to meet our new neighbors, who were coming across the straits in a flotilla of small boats.' He declared himself our ambassador, a post he retains to this day, and welcomed them to the commons of New America. Agreements were signed. The New Zealanders keep their way of life, and we keep ours. The only land left in the world. We can do what we like. And they understand we're quite happy without restarting the old ways. Who needs electricity, cars, and televisions? We tend our lands and herds, fish all we like, and trade for the little we need. He took a long pull on his beer. "'But the Americans, uncle,' insisted Mina. "'What if they all wake up?' "'I don't think we need to worry about that, Amore,' he said, taking another sip of beer. The scientist from Christchurch who had examined the project's records had found that the contract for the hibernation vault computer software, like everything else in old America, had gone to the lowest bidder. The scientists say... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But the natives won't wake up for 800 years. They're much happier asleep anyway. The smell of roasting pork was driving Peppino crazy. Salvatore, he called. How's the pig doing? This, too, was the ritual. It's not often we get stories of landmasses running amok around here. Don't mess with Texas, indeed.
Our second story this week is The Forest by Kim Wilkins, previously published in Year's Best Fantasy 9 in 2009. Ms. Wilkins was born in London and grew up by the seaside in Australia. She is the author of seven supernatural thriller novels for adults, five psychic crime novels for young adults, and five fantasy books for children. She has won Australia's Aurealis Award four times and has a Ph.D. in writing. Her novels include The Infernal, Grimoire, The Resurrectionists, Angels of Ruin, and the Gina Champion Mystery series. Her most recent novels are Rosa and the Veil of Gold, Giants of the Forest, and The Autumn Castle. Her official site is Fantastic Thoughts, linked in our show notes. It's read for us today by Nicole Doolin. Nicole writes fiction, poetry, and plays. Her work has appeared in a number of publications, and her stage plays have been presented in festivals. Nicole is also a voice actor who has performed in various mediums. She's produced a podcast called Audio Literacy Odyssey, in which she narrates classic literature by the likes of Austin, Poe, James, and more. Furthermore, Nicole has performed contemporary narrations for Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, The No Sleep Podcast, and Your Very Own Far-Fetched Fables. And now, The Forest by Kim Wilkins. One. My brother and I turned fifteen on the same day, but we are not twins. His mother is my stepmother. His stepfather is my father. We were raised together from the age of seven. We squabbled over toys, mocked each other's weaknesses, screamed red-faced that we hated each other in one moment, and poured over comic books together the next. All this familiarity, however, was not proof against attraction. My brother's name is Hansel. On the day he turned fifteen, he was half boy, half man. He wore his hair long, and could almost be mistaken for a girl, except that his body had begun to change. His long limbs were becoming dense with muscle. At our birthday party that day, I watched him across the table, beyond the limp cake that Mother had grudgingly spared an egg and a cup of flour for, and Hansel watched me because that is what we did. We watched each other. In the morning... While the grim skies above the city of Stonewold leached themselves to muddy gray-green, and the traffic began moving beyond our grimy windows. After school, while the black-and-white television flickered and grimaced in our gloomy living room. At supper, while our parents fretted about money and meted out string beans as though they were emeralds. And then at bedtime, across the four feet of space between our single beds, we watched each other and our eyes became as hungry as creeping poverty had made our bellies. And so my brother and I turned fifteen on the same day, and we watched each other turn fifteen, and something insistent pressed on my heart while I watched him. A fear of loss, a horror of growing older. Perhaps it is hindsight that allows me to describe it, because at fifteen most feelings are indescribable. At fifteen... Feelings are flashes of incomprehensible white heat. Convictions are as unutterable as they are searingly vital. The fabric of being is stretched by the swing of that hinge between childhood and adulthood. Souls ache. We were dispatched to bed after a supper of rough bread and dripping. Mother said that as we had eaten cake, we need not also eat a full meal. We said our goodnights as we had always said them, and climbed into our individual beds. 
but the pressure on my heart would not abate, and I tossed and turned for nearly an hour before I dropped into sleep. It seemed only minutes later that I woke to see a dark figure standing at the window. It was Hansel, gently parting the curtain to look outside. Hansel? I said. He turned, smiled. The streetlight caught him across the cheek, and my fingers prickled with the desire to touch him. I can't sleep, he said. I turned back my covers and stood with him, pulling the curtain open now so that the familiar peaks and edges of Stonewold were in view. The orange streetlights turned the perpetually swirling cloud above to amber. The slick streets were empty, oily with rain and muck. There is more, isn't there? Hansel said. Somewhere. They warned us in school that one day we would say these things. His fingers laid loosely on the windowsill, long, tanned fingers with bitten nails. One of the first lessons of our seventh grade was about puberty, how it would catch us and make us unhappy with what we have, how we would start to think about the forest. Do you think anybody ever gets to the forest, Gretel? Hansel said. We won't, and that's all that matters. Born in the city, die in the city. So the saying goes. I indicated with a tap on the glass the rusting, cut-out trees sprouting from the roof of the next building, the steel spirals mimicking organic shapes that hung from our own building. This is the closest we'll get to the forest. He leaned his head on the glass, closing his eyes so his long black lashes fanned out on his cheeks. I know I could breathe among the trees. Then he opened his eyes and fixed me in his gaze. This feeling will go away. A few years we'll learn to bury it. I don't want to bury it, I murmured, the pressure on my heart becoming painful. I would rather suffer. I know, he said, and it was the profoundest thing he had ever said. His fingers reached for mine and clutched them. A moment hung suspended between us, a sliver of clarity in the fog of adolescence. He lifted my hand to his mouth, and his tongue slid out and licked my index finger, wound around and down. An intoxicating weakness washed through me. He grasped me around both wrists gently and pulled me towards him, spreading my arms. I want to be young forever, he said. I do too. I could feel the heat of his body through my thin cotton nighty. He kissed me. It wasn't the first time, but the intent was new. All my senses flared into life and I moaned a little, a sound I'd never heard coming from me before. He pulled off his shirt, and I pulled off my nightie and my breasts were pressed against his bare skin, while two of his fingers trailed a searing passage down my body, crept inside the elastic of my underpants, and slid inside me. Noise, light, we jumped apart. Mother was standing in the doorway, one hand on the light switch, the other hand clutching a pile of our folded laundry. What's going on? She shouted in a panicky voice. Father, come here. Father was there a moment later, his grizzled mustache drooping over his mouth as he stared at me, then Hansel, half-dressed, red-faced. He marched in, grabbed Hansel roughly by the shoulder and pushed him out of the room. I quickly scrambled back into my nightie. The door of the bathroom slammed shut, and I heard the key in the lock. Father returned, wordlessly removed Mother from the room, then locked the bedroom door as well. I sat on my bed, my heart thundering. The curtain still lay partly open, 
revealing a shard of the amber sky. I heard voices and crept to the door to listen, mother and father. Shame upon this family, mother was saying. I won't have that boy in this home any longer. And I won't have that girl. A long silence. The subway roared beneath the building, shaking its foundations. Then mother said, we can't afford to keep them anyway. I'll take them into the old city tomorrow, he said. They'll never find their way back. Two. Father was a concreter, a trade that many young men of his generation were trained for, but a trade that had rapidly become obsolete. As Stonewold grew, every inch of dirt and grass disappeared under a hard gray veneer. There was simply nothing left to concrete. He eked out a living on minor repair jobs. The rusty tray of his old XP utility was lined with concrete dust and the occasional hard lump that had sat on the beige paint before he could clean it up. At dawn, Hansel and I were herded into the tray, where we were told to sit with our backs up against the cabin for safety. The ute took off, rattling over tram lines. We held hands. What will we do? I asked, close to Hansel's ear. I have a plan, he said as our apartment tower disappeared. From the inside pocket of his windcheater, he pulled a packet of Winfield cigarettes. I stole these from father this morning. What use are they to us? He glanced over his shoulder. I'm going to leave a trail to lead us back home. He shifted over closer to the side of the tray and began to drop cigarettes, one after the other, along the route through the city. They were brightly white against the grubby streets, and I cautiously shed my anxiety. Those pale cylinders would lead us home. Home was not a happy place, but it was better than being exposed in the city. Dark shadows stalked the city streets. Shadows with names like violence and winter and disease. But there came was hunger. We were leaving the new city behind now, with its rigidly planned structures of unpainted concrete, bristling with plastic and iron vegetation. As we wound down into the valley of the old city, the streets grew so narrow that the thin black buildings seemed to bend towards each other in aggressive challenge. The smell was bitter. Damp rot and garbage and decades-old car fumes trapped in tight alleys. Underlying it all was the ceaseless aroma of dead things, for many things died in the city. I presume mother and father expected us to die, and while this horrified me, it didn't surprise me. The instinct to destroy the young was always latent in their generation. It simply became more pronounced when we were all competing for food. Spirals within spirals. Demented alleys. The ute finally came to a halt in a space so tight that Father simply couldn't drive any further. He got out, opened the back of the tray. Here you are, kids. He handed us a rusty coin each, just enough to buy a bread roll. I'll pick you up in the same place at nightfall. This was a lie, and all three of us knew it, but nobody spoke it. Hansel and I stood in the moldy alley and watched Father's Ute back out into the street. One of the headlights was bent, shining at an odd angle against lichen-splattered brick. The engine spewed blue smoke as Father turned, revved, and drove away. The swirling olive-tinged clouds were thick and sludgy above us, and the tall buildings created cold shadows. An unnatural lightnessness pervaded, 
as though it were about to pour with rain any moment. But rain rarely came to Stonewall despite the perpetual cloud cover. Miserable drizzle sometimes, or weeks and weeks of unbearably chill humidity. Never a thundering downpour to wash the streets clean. What now? I said to Hansel. He shrugged. I guess we'll follow the trail. We walked to the next block, where the first cigarette lay waiting for us. Hansel picked it up, brushing in a gray stain on the white paper. He straightened, scanned for the next, and on we went. We passed boarded-up shops, their faded signs streaked with water stains and bird droppings. We passed a concrete children's playground, with a toppled-over climbing frame, and an odor of cat urine lingering in the sand pit. We passed an empty car yard where aluminum cans and fast food wrappers clung to the chain wire fence, and six bent hubcaps were propped up against the shop front. Behind the clouds, the sun had risen, and so the traffic started. We risked our lives at intersections where road rules had long since been abandoned. We passed rows of black apartment blocks. Most of their windows were shut against the smell and the ugliness of the city, but one stood open. Led Zeppelin's cashmere spurting a deafening volume onto the street. The song followed us for two more blocks, a steam train on heavy rails. Then the cigarettes ran out. Shit, Hansel said after a long search. I tried not to panic. A cold wind had risen, and Hansel wondered aloud if the cigarettes had simply blown away. Then an old tramp with a brown coat came past us, walking in the other direction a crisp Winfield cigarette between his lips. Hey, Grandad, Hansel said, grasping the old tramp's arm. Where did you get that? The tramp grinned, pulled a handful of cigarettes out of his pocket. Someone left him in the strish. Hansel rolled his eyes and groaned. Did you pick them all up? Any I could see. You wantin'? Hansel took the cigarette offered to him, leaned in to light it from the tramp's cigarette. He angled his head slightly as though he intended to kiss the old man. I admired the soft line of his jaw. It's a good day, the tramp said to me, laughing softly. It is, I said impatiently, too caught up in my own suffering for kindness. Allays a good un when you get smokes for nothing. He winked waved and shuffled off. Ansel blew out a stream of smoke, shrugged. We're fucked now. Maybe we can find our way back anyway. I glanced around, trying to squeeze familiarity out of the surroundings. I think we came under that arch. I don't remember it. His eyes went skyward. Strange here in the old city, without the tram cables. Feels like we're not in a cage for once. I followed his gaze, cheering myself. The edge of a feeling tickled me. A feeling like liberty. Come on, he said. You're probably right, under the arch. Gradually we grew dizzy. The streets of Stonewold seemed designed to confuse. Landmarks repeated, causing the cold anxiety that we were retracing our steps. When our legs ached, we knew we were heading slowly upwards, and so we were going in the right direction. When they didn't ache, we were relieved of discomfort, but knew we were losing ourselves. The day progressed. I grew hungry. I swallowed three times for every hunger pain, as we had been taught in school. 
It didn't work. It never worked, but it was better than doing nothing. We talked about spending our money on bread, but decided to save it. Insurance against things getting worse. Those who are schooled in privation can always imagine worse privation. Bad luck only takes the wealthy by surprise. Hansel clutched my hand, dragging me hither and thither, deeper and deeper into the maze of the city. The streets were too narrow for traffic. The noise withdrew through back alleys. I was nearly ready to admit that we had no hope of finding home again. That was when I saw the white bird. Hansel, look! It was the strangest bird I'd seen. I was used to the dull brown sparrows of Stonewold, small and dirty. This bird was snowy white, with a long, elegant tail, an azure crest on his head, and proud black eyes. Most unusually, it was mechanical, made of springs and screws. It sat on the sign of an empty shop, leaning its metal feathers. Hansel stopped and turned, his eyes following the direction I was pointing. He smiled, approached, and held up his hand. Hello, where are you from? The bird raised his crest and spoke, licking his tongue in his beak. The forest. Hansel and I exchanged desperate glances. The forest? Now the bird spread his snowy wings and swooped into the air. He stayed low, heading down an alley. Without a word between us, Hansel and I began to run, following the bird, splashing through mud and nearly slipping on the algae bitumen. The way home was abandoned behind us along with daylight, which was closed up by narrower and narrower spaces. Finally, the bird burst through the other side of the black alley. A half-demolished building lay to our left, a group of shops to our right. Ahead of us was a shining mirror, twenty feet tall and easily as wide, embedded in a gray wall. The bird arrowed towards it, its reflection growing larger all the time. We could see ourselves in pursuit. The mirror drew close. We pulled up, the bird didn't. It speared into the mirror. A ripple of light flashed behind it. The cityscape in the mirror disappeared. In its place was a forest. I choked on my own breath, ran forward, puzzled to see my own reflection hovering ghost-like among the verdant shadows. Hansel was beside me a moment later, hands pounding on the mirror. The bird sat on a branch and made a noise almost like laughter, only now it wasn't mechanical, but a real bird of feathers and fine bones. How do we get in? Hansel shouted. We all go empty-handed into the unknown. The bird squawked, then took to the sky and disappeared. What does that even mean? I murmured as I gazed at the forest. Drooping larch cast its hanging shadows over sunlit rocks. Long, soft grass rippled in the breeze. A narrow stream curled its way through the trees, and suddenly I was desperately thirsty. All around me were the smells of water gone bad. Stagnant, moldering. I wanted more than anything to bend at the sight of that sweet stream and drink. Hansel had picked up a half-brick from the demolished building and threw it hard against the mirror. The brick bounced back, hitting him in the shoulder. The mirror didn't crack. He staggered, swearing in frustration. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Hansel and I turned. Outside one of the shops was a woman, around the same age as our parents. She was well-dressed and tidy, with shining chestnut hair and thick spectacles. The sign over her head said, Sweet Shop. My mouth began to water. Why not? Hansel demanded. What's in there? 
It's a trick of the imagination, that's all. There is no forest, just a mirror. Look. We looked. The forest was gone. The reflection of the dark city gazed back at us. Besides, she said, breaking a mirror is seven years' bad luck. She smiled. Would you like to come in? She stood aside, nudging open the door of the shop. Hansel and I stumbled over our feet in our hurry to accept her invitation. Inside the sweet shop, the air was warm and heavy with the aroma of baking biscuits. The walls were painted black, which contrasted strongly with the colored sweets. Reds and pinks and greens and bright yellows. Strings of gingerbread hung like streamers from the ceiling. Barrels of butterscotch. Jelly shapes. Powdered Turkish delight and other treats waited in every corner. And a little fountain of chocolate stood in the middle of it all, bubbling over neatly stacked pink marshmallows. I forgot myself. It wasn't the sweets that aroused this fissure in the meaning of things. It was the concept of plenty. And all my life, I had never seen plenty before. The woman sat on a stool by the counter and crossed her stocking legs neatly. Help yourselves. We can't afford to pay for this, I said, blinking back into cognizance. She waved my concern away with a flick of her beautifully manicured hand. Oh, never mind. You look hungry. Ansel had no hesitations. He was already stuffing gingerbread into his mouth. I need to tell you something, though, the woman said. I do prefer to be upfront about these things. I'm a witch. Ansel laughed, spraying crumbs from his mouth. He didn't believe in witches. I was less sure. What do you mean? I asked, tentatively nibbling some peanut brittle. I'm a witch. Magic spells and so on. I control all the rats in this part of the city. She clapped her hands together, and out of the shadowy corners advanced a dozen rats. They gathered at the bottom of her stool and waited, patient as newly trained puppies. Even the rats couldn't turn me off the food, which, now it had hit my stomach, had aroused ravenous hunger. I finished a slab of peanut brittle and went for a strap of raspberry licorice. Are you going to put spells on us? Hansel asked. Heavens no. There's no need for that. That's cool, he said, reaching his hand into a barrel of jelly snakes. Stay a while, the witch said, wistfully blinking her pale eyes behind the thick spectacles. As long as you like, eat what you like. I'm going to sit here and count my money. She popped open the cash register and pulled out handfuls of gold coins, which she began to count and stack, humming softly to herself. The big enamel stove ticked softly, warming the space. I had to admit that she seemed very friendly and kind for a witch, and I relaxed and filled my stomach with sweet delights. Afterwards, she made us thick hot chocolate to drink, and then the evening was approaching, so she insisted we stay a while, that there would be crumpets and marmalade for breakfast, and, as long as we didn't mind the rats, we were welcome to sleep in the spare bedroom. I had reservations, I do remember that. My stomach was full, we might have been on our way. But what reservations can stand up to abundance? In the morning there would be more, and more was what I wanted. 
Our beds were side by side under a window with a white blind. Hansel held my hand for a long time, but eventually sleep caught him and he let me go and turned on his side. As I drifted off, I listened to the sound of the rats skittering around under our beds and the clink of the witch counting her gold coins by the thin electric light. Three. Did I forget to mention that I eat children? I opened my eyes. The witch was leaning on my bed dressed in a tidy beige suit. One of the lenses of her spectacles was cracked, the other missing completely. Confusion arrested me. What did you say? I eat children, she smiled. So much for wanting to be young forever, eh? She stood and walked away. I checked Hansel's bed. He was gone. I leapt up and made to run after her, but beneath my feet a swarm of rats began to move, warm, scratching bodies. I lost my footing. I fell. A rat squealed. I began to shout. What do you mean? Where's my brother? Her voice was calm, drifting from within the sweet shop. Well, come and see. I kicked rats out of my way. One bit my bare toe, but I hardly felt it. My heart seemed to have grown too large for my chest. It sat on my lungs. The chocolate fountain had been cleared away from the center of the sweet shop. In its place was a silver cage, and in the cage was Hansel. I approached, limbs shaking. His knuckles were bloody. A graze adorned his temple. He looked up at me with sulky eyes. The bitch caught me. I reached for the bars. The moment I touched them, a sweet melody began to play, a pearly, disembodied voice gathering in the dark arch of the room. I swear by the sour, I swear by the sweet, someone is trying to steal your meat. The witch strode over and knocked my hands off the cage with a thick candy cane. Don't touch, she said, or I shall know and you will end up in there with him. I realized she was having trouble focusing on me, and I glanced at the floor of the cage, shards of broken glass. Hansel had broken her spectacles trying to get away from her. She blinked rapidly. I can't see well enough to go to the grocery store for turnips, she said. You'll have to go. Turnips? For my boy roast. One must have vegetables with meat. Too much meat by itself is bad for one's colon. I was speechless. The witch carefully pulled a handful of coins out of her pocket. Peering closely, she fingered them one by one until she landed on the right denomination. She held it out to me. Here, the grocery store's two blocks west. The rats will show you. Then she smiled. And if you try to run, the rats will tell me and I will cut Hansel up bit by bit. I will have boy fondue instead of boy roast. I will invite all my witchy friends over, and we will listen to Carol King and talk about how good life used to be. Understand? I nodded, felt the sweat forming around the coin in my palm. At least going to the grocery store would give me time to think of a plan to free Hansel. She gave me a little push towards the door. Scurrying feet followed me, two rats, close at my heels. The first thing I saw as I emerged into gray daylight was the giant mirror. There was no forest in it, no white bird, 
Only miles of concrete structures strangling out the day. Gloomy clouds crowded down on me. I hesitated, straining to see the sunlit stream again. There is no forest, one of the rats said in a soft voice. I looked down. I saw the forest. Don't talk to it, hissed the other rat. The witch just wants turnips. A friend of mine thought to get through to the forest, the first rat said. A friend? A rat friend? I had never heard a rat speak before. Yes, he stole a gold coin from the witch and came here and slammed himself up against the mirror until he brained himself. You see his bones there. I moved towards the mirror and stooped to pick up a rat bone, perhaps from a hind leg. I put it in my pocket. Hurry, hurry, said the second rat. Do you like the witch? I asked. Nobody likes witches, said the second rat. But she gives us lots of things, said the first rat. Sweetmeats and so on. If we stay loyal to her, she gives us one coin every five years. And if we are disloyal, said the second rat in an urgent voice, she boils us up in a pot. Let's hurry. I returned to the witch with a turnip twenty minutes later, and she declared she would cook Hansel that very afternoon. Then she retired to count her money, and I sat next to the cage, careful not to touch the bars, to keep Hansel company. I had never lost anything as precious as Hansel. I cried and my tears fell onto my hands. Don't cry, he said. I'll get out of this. How? When she opens the cage, I'll overpower her. I didn't point out that he hadn't managed to overpower her when she'd put him in the cage. Then we'll run to the mirror and escape into the forest. It's not there anymore. It might come back. I pulled the rat bone out of my pocket and handed it to him through the bars. Nobody gets through the mirror. He turned the bone over in his hands. That bird did, he said, but he sounded less certain now. That witch has so much, I said. She has gold coins and more sweets than she could ever eat. Why must she eat you as well? I shivered thinking about my own fate. Why must she eat both of us? Hansel didn't answer. He tucked the bone behind his ear. His long hair covered it. I might stab her in the eye with this, he said. He seemed very young, a little boy playing a game of superheroes. My hand stole between the bars and he took it. I noticed he held it very tightly. We said nothing for a long time. Four. Almost the dinner hour, said the witch. I need to heat the stove. How much fat is on you, boy? If I roast you too hot, you'll get tough. I do despise chewy children. I shuffled out of the way and watched as the witch reached blindly for Hansel. The bars sang, but she didn't mind. Quickly, Hansel pulled the rat bone from behind his ear and thrust it out towards her. Her fingers caught it. My, she said, you are very thin. I'm only a boy, he said in a little voice. I wanted to laugh and cry at the same moment. <laughs> she put her hands on her hips. Hmm, I have the stove far too hot. I'll have to adjust it. 
You looked so succulent when you first arrived. She turned to me, fixed her pale gaze just above my eyebrows. A smile formed, a very unpleasant smile. Gretel, perhaps you can help me. I scrambled to my feet. She grabbed my hand and hauled me behind her. I can't see the controls on the stove properly since your brother busted my spectacles. She thrust me in front of a large dial on the side of the stove. What does that say? H for hot, I replied. Put it on M for medium. I would like to say that I saved my brother then, that I had the forethought to turn the stove off altogether. But while my mind tried to process the impulse, the witch guessed my hesitation and whistled for two rats, who came to supervise. I turned the dial to M, medium. Hansel would be roasted at a medium heat, and there was nothing I could do. The witch opened the stove door, a wall of heat blasted out, making me stagger back. The long cylinder inside was deep enough for a tall boy like Hansel to lie, curled in a fetal position. It was lined with coals that glowed orange. She handed me a poker. Rake those coals so they lie even, she said. I want him roasted nicely all over. I reached in as far as I could. My arm grew hot. I raked the coals. Get right into the back. But climb up on the lip of the stove. Do as I say. I'll cut him to pieces. I climbed onto the lip of the stove. My hand burned against the soot-streaked enamel. I reached as far as I could. My shoulder was pushed up against the opening to the stove. I turned my head away, trying to keep my face from roasting. I saw her piles and piles of gold coins on the bench next to the stove, and I had an idea. My heart thudded because I doubted myself, but necessity made me bold. I crouched, pretending to peer into the stove. What's that? I said. What's what? She asked, myopic gaze seeking me out. Is that a gold coin at the back of the stove? She jumped. What? Is it melting? I stepped down, adopted a casual tone. Oh, it wasn't a coin at all. A coin? Melting in there? No, no, nothing at all, nothing. Here, let me keep raking the coals. You're just saying that now. There's a coin in there. You're going to rake it up and keep it. No, it was a trick of the light. Rats, she exclaimed, and immediately three of them were at her feet. One of you climb up and tell me if you see a gold coin in the back of the stove. The first climbed up. Nothing, witch, it said. I don't believe you. You want it for yourself. The second climbed up. Nothing, witch, it said. Ah, she exclaimed, pulling at her hair. I can't trust you. There's gold melting in there. The third climbed up. Really, witch, there is nothing there. She kicked the rat out of the way, doubt possessing her, ravens in her brain. I'll look for myself. She pulled out a big pair of oven mitts and leaned into the mouth of the stove, muttering, frantic. I kicked her. I kicked her so hard that I tore the muscle in my right thigh. Her upper body slammed onto the coals. Rats began to bite my feet. I pushed the stove door, but her bottom was in the way. She was screaming. I lifted her legs and cracked them between the door and the stove. Something broke. 
I folded her in, slammed the door shut, and dropped the latch. Then I went to the dial and turned it up to VH. Very hot. Hansel heard the screaming and was shouting at me to come. I limped out, my blood still thundering. What happened? He said. She's in the stove, I said, panting, shaking the bars of his cage. The cage began to sing, but this time the music was out of tune, warped and dripping. The bars began to dissolve in my hands, turning to sticky, sugary syrup. Hansel leapt free and embraced me. The rats were in chaos. Some were shouting that they had been liberated, while others tried to trip us and bite us. Hansel linked his arm through mine and we turned to the witch's cash register. We filled our pockets with gold coins, then ran out of the shop and stopped at the mirror. Already four rats, gold coins clenched between their teeth, were trying to bash their way through. Again and again they struck themselves against the unforgiving glass until they were battered and bleeding. I put out my hand. The mirror was cool. It did not bend, it did not melt, and it certainly did not let me through. Hansel hammered his shoulder against it, grunting. Sweat formed on his brow. In the mirror, I saw the white bird sitting on the exposed brickwork of the half-demolished building to our left. I looked behind me. In reality, it wasn't there. How do we get in? I called to the bird in the mirror. It didn't answer. I watched as Hansel knocked himself against the mirror as the rats began to drop, one by one in bloody, mangled heaps. And I knew. We all go empty-handed into the unknown. Hansel, turn out your pockets, I said. I reached into my own pockets, dropping coins on the ground as if they were as inconsequential as dust balls. But the money, he moaned. I've never seen so much of it. I was too young to articulate my conviction. That wealth could be measured without coins. That youth, health, and love, oh, God, love, were blessings not to be squandered. All I could say was, I know this will work. Hansel stopped. He turned his pockets inside out, a clattering, ringing shower. Gold coins and shining, seductive clusters at our feet, along with the dull, rusted ones our father had given us. We faced each other. He leaned down, kissed me hard. He tasted like candy and fear. I took his hand, and we walked forward, softly, into the forest. As with many classic fairy tales, this one serves as an allegory for innocence lost, with some intriguing twists courtesy of Ms. Wilkins. Fascinating. And that brings us to the end of another show. Please remember, Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but don't change it or sell it. If you like what you hear, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The button's on the website. Please pop over and give a little something. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be here next week, same time, same place. Until then. Take care. Keep smiling at the stars. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. 
dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.